0: Holy God, what good news it is to know that you are a shield. Dear God, you have protected us from countless and unknown dangers. This world and our lives are a lot more treacherous than what we know. And we don't know it because you've protected us and been a shield. But Lord, there are occasions when you allow difficulties to come our way, and they bow us low, and they hurt. But dear God, you lift our heads. And this morning, we've come before you with the need for you to be our shield and the lifter of our heads. Would you come through powerfully to do that? And we pray, dear God of Israel, that you would teach us who you are, that we might rush to you with our prayers to be a shield and the lifter of our heads. In Jesus' name and for his sake we pray, amen and amen. My goodness. Think we'll have to call our operations facilities committees together. Uh, I think after that the choir broke the roof or something, lifting it off the place. So thank God for you. You've done a marvelous work honoring the Lord today. Let me invite your attention to 1 Chronicles chapter four. First Chronicles chapter four. I also want you to look at Isaiah one and um, uh, Proverbs thirty one and Psalms one fifteen. In fact, just open your Bible somewhere. I'll get there eventually. Okay. Uh, but uh, this is gonna be one of those messages usually I'll take a paragraph in the scripture and just expound that but for the month of January I'm looking at two verses in the first Chronicles chapter 4 in the midst of all these genealogies and names that surface and Jabez and his prayer surface here it's remarkable the microscope that is placed on Jabez Jabez prays here in this text Because he has gone through some pain and God has transitioned him to being an honorable man. And then uh, that happens because of his prayer life and particularly the God he calls on. And he has a certain understanding of God. And he uses a title for God here in 1 Chronicles 4.10 that is used 200 times in the Old Testament. And that is the title, God of Israel. God of Israel. Israel. Now, I know you woke up this morning really with bated breath and excited to learn what it means for God to be the God of Israel. I know that probably didn't happen, but it should. And by the end of the message, you'll understand why. Um, Then this is terribly important because we're looking at January 26th at being a prayer commitment day in our church. We want you to come and do two things on that day. Number one, we want you to select a day, an hour to pray and to pray for one another. And I'm hoping 168 of us at least will commit ourselves to pray an hour a day for one another to cover up every hour of the week. Can you imagine what it would be like for our church family, for our members, for our people, for those that don't know the Lord, for those on our prayer list, if every hour of the week were covered in prayer by someone in our congregation? So we want you to select a day and hour. But second, we want you to submit two or three uh, prayer requests that we're calling Him-possible requests. Not impossible, but Him-possible requests. That means unless God intervenes, it just isn't going to happen. God has got to intervene for this to occur and to happen. It may be some need that you're aware of. It may be a need in your own personal life, in your family, or some other area of life. But we want you to come that day and submit two or three impossible requests. And then those of us that commit ourselves to pray will take those requests and pray over them for 40 days and ask God to come through and do a marvelous work. Donald Miller from Fort Worth years ago popularized this. And Michael Catt lately at Sherwood in Albany Um, the executive producer of many of the movies, Christian movies that have come out lately, has written about this in some of his books. And this is what Michael says about Impossible Request and how they prayed for them at Sherwood Baptist Church in Albany, Georgia, uh, for 40 days. He said, During those 40 days, several couples who were dealing with infertility miraculously conceived children. We heard of people experiencing dramatic transformations in their families. We saw prodigals come home. We witnessed the salvation of family members. God took the impossible and turned it into him possible. Now he says not every prayer request was answered at that time. They've continued to pray for these and later some of them were. But it got the church started and their folks started to asking God to do God-sized things in their lives. And God has come through And if he didn't exactly on their timetable, he had a good reason for delay. And one day we may talk about that and probably we'll talk about that January 26. But the point needs to be made. We need to come before God and commit ourselves to be disciplined, to select a day and hour to pray for one another and to bring to him two or three, him possible requests. Now, Jabez understood much of this. Beginning in Jabez chapter, excuse me, 1 Chronicles chapter 4 and verse 9, it says here, now Jabez was more honorable than his brothers, and his mother called him Jabez, saying, because I bore him in pain. The name Jabez means pain. Now, out of this text, we learn we are here to pray at least two different kind of prayer requests. One I covered last week, and that is anguished prayer. Jabez prays because he's in pain. In fact, Something happened in his birth or upbringing that brought his mother to the point where she called him Jabez. Pain. The word Jabez means pain. And after studying this passage for almost 35 years, it still stuns me a mother would do that to her son. To give him the name pain. She might say it under her breath or in exasperation. She may say, you're a pain in my neck. But to actually give the boy a name like that still stuns me. Either she was oversensitive to the normal pain of childbirth, which I sympathize with that, obviously. But uh, she may have been more sensitive than the average mother. Or there was something unusually painful about the birth of the boy to where she gave him the name pain. What we've learned, though, is that anguish, anguish in life, pain in life, happens to be three things for us. One, it happens to be a platform. It's a platform or a stage where God intends to get in the middle of it with you and to draw attention to you because of your anguish and pain and show the world that he's faithful to provide and care for those on his own. That's one thing that anguish does. And if we'll pray about it, God will show up center stage and begin to take care and to provide. But the second thing, it's not only a platform, it's also a signal. Whenever you came to your point of anguish and pain, God was not caught up short and God was not surprised. God was prepared and has been prepared for a long time. And what your pain signals is that God has got a blessing for you, waiting for you that you've just not asked for yet. And your anguish is to drive you to him, to pursue him, and to magnify how faithful and good he is. But there's a third thing that anguish does. It teaches us. And it shows us that God is not finished teaching us how to pray. And specifically, we're to pray over those things that may bring shame whether it's uncertainty, whether it's failure, whatever it may be, we do not hide it because listen to me carefully. You are no stronger than your secrets. Keep no secrets. Share your burden with someone and with God in in an appropriate way. And there's a way to handle that in a way that is very disciplined and careful, but brings you relief to your soul because you're no stronger than your secrets. Get your secrets out, out of your heart. Get your secrets exposed out of the dark, and God can come through with people who will pray for you. So we're to pray anguish prayers, but there's a second thing as well in the text. We are to pray assured prayers. And that's what I want to focus on mostly today, beginning in verse number 10. And Jabez called on the God of Israel. There's the assurance. Whenever you pray, I want to ask you and suggest to you that you begin to think of God as the God of Israel. I know that you're living in this day. Israel's an ancient nation. Much of the Israelite nation is not Christian. But nevertheless, we're not talking about them. We're talking about God, the God of Israel. And as you pray, I want to urge you to consider the God to whom you pray is the God of Israel. Now, why would I want to do that? Why would we want to do that? Why would we want to pray and consider God as the God of Israel? There are three reasons that surface in the text. And the first is this, the God of Israel has a history of responding. You can look back in Israel's history and when they cried out and called out to God, God came through, saving them from their enemies returning them back to the promised land from Babylonian captivity, whatever it may be. In fact, in 1948, establishing a nation for them so they would never, ever suffer another holocaust in a foreign land. All of these answers to prayer. This God has a history of responding. And that boosts our confidence because He does not change. Now look at Psalms 115. Psalms 115. This is how the Old Testament imagines God in history and how he responds. It starts off in verse one, not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory because of your mercy and truth. You deserve glory because of your mercy and truth. And then in verse number three, he says something remarkable about God and then contrasts this God who acts in history with the false gods of the world. He says in verse three, but our God is in heaven. He does whatever he pleases. Now, sweet people, don't ever forget verse 3. In fact, you probably need to memorize it. God does whatever he pleases. And that has got to be the guiding concept by which you interpret everything in life. He is in heaven. He does whatever he pleases. But the false gods of the world, Molech, Baal, Chemosh, money, sex, romance, sports, athletics, bodybuilding, whatever it may be, the false gods of the world cannot say that. In fact, all they qualify for is verse number four and verse number five and six. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of men's hands. They have mouths, but they do not speak. Eyes they have, but they do not hear. They have ears, but they do not hear. This is what, um, God is contrasted with. By being the God of Israel, he's different than the pagan gods. He is the God who is alive and active. None of them are. They are fake. They are false. They are inanimate. The prophets of Baal with Elijah prayed to him, but no one heard, no one answered, no one responded, but the God of Israel will. He is the living God, and because He's living and because He's active, He has a history of responding. There is no other God who can claim that distinction except this God. He is the God of Israel. Now, that's terribly important because we look to Him. We look to Him in a prayer time. We look to Him for hope. We look to Him for satisfaction, whatever it may be, not to false gods. Now, listen. We don't even make false gods of good things that God places in our lives, and we don't turn them into number one lest they become a false god. Everything in its place is entirely appropriate as long as God is number one. For example... I I will tell you that through much of my life, I I pursued an an academic career and an academic life. But that was not satisfying to my heart. I've got the greatest wife in the world, along with the rest of you other fellows. But I've got to say to you, she is not capable of satisfying my heart. My relationship with her just is not enough to do for me what only God can do. My family is not capable of doing that, and it is an unreasonable burden, an expectation to place on them the expectation that they will do what only God can do. They've got to be kept in their place. They don't serve me by satisfying me. I serve them by modeling Jesus Christ and leave the satisfaction of my heart to Almighty God. All these things have got to be in their place, and we've got to be very, very careful of misguided expectations on things and people and even the gifts of God. Only God is worthy to occupy that place because He's the God of Israel and therefore has a history of responding to the cries of His people. But there's a second thing He not only has a history of responding, but He also has a habit of reliability. He's very reliable. He's not like Sherry Michelle and I were one time. Uh, When I was in Fort Worth at Southwestern Seminary, I did an interim pastorate in New Mexico. Flew back and forth every weekend. And one weekend, the church flew my family out to New Mexico, to Albuquerque, and we enjoyed our time there. It was a marvelous opportunity, and it was great to be there. Uh, But uh, when we were leaving our room to go to church Sunday morning uh, for me to preach, I uh, stepped out of the room, got into the vehicle, and did not have my cell phone. And I remembered the last time I had my cell phone, I gave it to my wife. And I don't know why I did that. She had her own, but uh, it may have died, or maybe she misplaced hers, and she was using mine and had not returned it to me. So I'm sitting in the car, and I say, Honey, can I have back my cell phone? She says, I don't have it. I said, Yes, you do, or I wouldn't ask you. She said, I don't have it. I said, Yes, you do. I gave it to you last time. She said, Go look in the room. So I went back into the room, and I looked around the room, and I could not find it. I came back to the car. I said, honey, I, I, don't, I couldn't find it. Um, would you go into the room and look for it? Now, I'm a man, okay? And like other men, I can look at something square, and it can be in front of my eyes, and I promise you, I don't see it. I don't see it. You know, despite how handsome and good-looking I, I I just don't see it, Okay? Well, I ask her, you you know how I am. Yes, I know how you are. Would you go back into the room and look for my phone? Well, she goes into the room and looks. And I think to myself, you know, I better check my backpack one more time. Well, I open my backpack and there it is. And I think, well, I didn't see it there this morning. So I pick it up and I put it in her purse. I'm not going to admit that I'm wrong again." She comes out of the room, gets into the vehicle. She says, I couldn't find it. And I said, well, why don't you look in your purse one more time? She opens her purse, and she picks it up, and she makes the loudest commotion and cackle of laughter I've ever heard her make, and that's saying something for her. Very happy, very, uh, very happy person. And I I said, what are you laughing about? It's just a cell phone. She said, when you were in the room, I looked in my purse. It was there, and I put it in your backpack. (laughs) We later went to breakfast, and I stopped and got her something and brought it back to the car and um, she ordered it and um, I told me what I was to get her and I made it extra spicy. But um, anyway, at that moment, we were not being very reliable to one another, even though we were tight and we were close. God has never had that problem at all. Now, I want you to look with me uh, or, or li- listen to 2 Chronicles chapter 6, verse 14. Lord God of Israel, there's no God in heaven or on earth like you. Who keep your covenant and mercy with your servants who walk before you with all their hearts. God guards his faithfulness to his covenant. He keeps it. And he does that with his mercy. Mercy, by the way, is the most often made request in prayer in the entire Bible. Oh God, come through for needy people, for those of us who need you. Now, the covenant that he's keeping here is to Israel. And it refers back to Genesis 12, where God said to Abraham, well, Genesis 12, 15, and 17, that I will multiply you, I will grow you, I will increase you. And ladies and gentlemen, that's exactly what happened to Israel. And And the beginnings of Israel are just remarkable. Abraham has one son of promise, Isaac. He then only has two. But then the next, the third generation, there are 12. And from that comes the nation of Israel, so that when they leave Egypt... When they leave Egypt, they've gone from 70 to 2 million people 400 years later. It's just remarkable. One nation. And Israel exists today. You you can travel the world today and search for the ancient peoples that surrounded Israel and not find one. You'll never find an ancient Hittite. You'll never find an ancient Jebusite. You will never find an ancient Canaanite or Philistine. You'll not find any of those ancient peoples except the ancient Israelites, the Hebrew children, because God made them a promise and God has kept it. He has a habit of reliability to his people. So Israel's existence today and the church's existence and growth over two millenniums is a testimony that God has a habit of reliability. Did you Do you know, in fact, there are so many Christians in churches in the world today that now two millenniums after Pentecost, when the church started, the church today is 83 million times larger than when she first began. God has a habit of reliability. He has a history of um, responding. But there's a third thing. God also has a heart for redemption. God has a heart for redemption, and this is why you need to call on the God Now, redemption is, uh, as you're turning to Isaiah 1 and Proverbs 31, uh, redemption is simply this. It assumes someone is in bondage. They may be in bondage because of their evil criminal choices, and they are in bondage with a court or a sentence. Uh, It may be that they're in bondage to some habit or some sin. It could be they're in bondage to fear. It could be that they're in bondage to... The devil. It could be bondage in many different ways, but it assumes bondage. Redemption assumes bondage. But redemption is coming to those in bondage and paying the price for their liberty, whatever it may be. And God has done that with the blood of Jesus Christ. And in that way, to liberate us from bondage to our guilt bondage to fear of the grave and hell and death, bondage to evil forces. He broke that when Jesus Christ died on the cross. And today we can trust him. We can believe him. We can follow him because of the power of redemption. So when Jesus paid the price uh, at, at the cross, he satisfied the court of God and the fine there that was against us. He also broke the power of demons, darkness and the devil when he died on the cross. And so, This shows the heart of God. Now, the price that Jesus Christ paid is not distinct from God Himself. It's not merely that Jesus volunteered for the mission, though His heart was there and He went willingly. The reason Jesus Christ died on the cross is that His Father wanted Him to. So at the cross, Jesus is not only making a sacrifice, but His Father is making a sacrifice as well. That's the kind of heart God has for setting you free. That's what God has in his own heart and soul. Now, I want you to notice just the extent to which God is willing to go to liberate people. Isaiah chapter 1. Look there in Isaiah chapter number 1, and you're going to find something really remarkable about the people that God ends up Redeeming Here in chapter 1, he complains intensely about the wickedness of Israel, and he compares them to livestock. He compares them to livestock. Look at verse number 3. The ox knows its owner, and the donkey its master's crib, but Israel does not know, my people do not consider. In other words, God could get more obedience and cooperation from oxen and donkeys than he could his own people whom he's redeemed. And he continues all the way down to verse 15 to complain about the unfaithfulness of Israel and how inferior their obedience and cooperation is to the beasts and to farm animals. Verse 4, a last sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, a brood of evildoers, children who are corruptors. They have forsaken the Lord. They provoked Uh, to anger, the Holy One of Israel, they have turned away backward. And he continues with this same kind of language all the way down through verses 16 and 17. And then look, it turns in verse 18. Come now, let us reason together as a consequence of how repulsive you become to me, as a consequence of how disgusting you are before me, here's what I'm going to do. Come now. Come to me. Let's think through this and walk together through this, says the Lord. Though your sins are as scarlet, they shall be white as snow, and though they are red like crimson, they can be as wool. And did you know that can happen to you today? Even though you may be guilty before God, God can cleanse you and make you His own and make you just as cherished and near to Him as if you had never failed before. And that's the invitation he gives to the whole world, secured and purchased by the death of Jesus Christ. And so this is the extent to which God is willing to go. And these are the people that God is willing to redeem. So as the God of Israel, this God is willing to lay claim to those who have rebelled. Now that's another part of redemption. It's got several parts. There happens to be bondage. There's a price paid to release people from bondage. And once that price is paid, they become the possession of the one who paid the price. And do you understand? When God paid the price for our sins and our souls and our freedom through the death of Jesus Christ, it was his intention to take possession of every one of us to openly, publicly, eternally claim us as his own. For us to walk with him and to be identified with him like a father is to children. That is what God is willing to do. So this God who has a heart of redemption is the kind of God who lays claim to people that fit the description of all the worst verses in the entire Bible. He lays claim to people who failed like David and Bathsheba. He lays claim to Tamar, Rahab, to Zacchaeus, to the Gadarene demoniac. He lays claim to anyone who's willing to repent and believe the gospel. There is no one that has to be excluded, and the only thing that keeps them from being redeemed and claimed in the possession of God is their own unwilling willingness to repent and believe there's nothing in God to keep them from him there's nothing about God unprepared there's nothing about God unwilling everything about God is willing to embrace every person on the earth if they'll repent and believe in him She was merely Michelle. To her family, she's Sherry Michelle. Um, In our family, I call her Missy. Privately, okay, and only I can use that name. And so, it's a term of affection, and it grows out of our uh, dating relationship. There's a reason why I may tell you about sometime in the future. Look at Proverbs 31, verse one. Now, this is the chapter where this king is instructed on how to be a great king by his mother. And then he later describes the virtuous woman who becomes a great wife, and many women adopt this passage as the model for themselves uh, in uh, marriage and in family and in motherhood. But verse one: the words of King Lemuel, the utterance which his mother taught him. Now who in the world is King Lemuel? many people simply do not know. There are some that have speculated that he's a king from northern Arabia that was a Gentile king, but that would be highly unusual that a Gentile would be writing any portion of the Old Testament. There are many who actually feel that this is a nickname for Solomon, who wrote many of the other Proverbs, and that this is a nickname for him given to him by his mother because she instructs him on how to be a king in verses 1 through 9, and then they believe she's being described in verse 9 down to verse 31. And here's the question I want to ask you. Who was King Solomon's mother? Think about it for a moment. Do you remember the story of David and Bathsheba? Bathsheba bathes in front of David, gets his attention. David sins in addition to her, and they end up having a relationship, and there's a child that is born that dies. They marry, and Solomon is born. Do you remember that story? It's Bathsheba, David and Bathsheba. If Solomon is the one that wrote Proverbs 31, and I believe he is, then the mother who is explaining to him how to be a great king is none other than Bathsheba. And the virtuous woman... He describes here is his mother. The Proverbs 31 woman, I believe, is Bathsheba. God did something in her life. She failed, she failed, and she failed miserably, and we've been talking about it now for about 3,000 years. And yet, God did something in her life released her from that bondage, and she shows up in Proverbs 31 as the Proverbs 31 woman. It happened to Bathsheba. It can happen to you. Are you depressed and anxious? God wants you. Are you guilty? God wants you. Are you in doubt? God wants you. Are you struggling with the future or addiction? God wants you. You Have you been rejected or abused? God wants you. And you've got to stop believing that you're not desirable. You've got to stop hesitating with this God. You need to run, rush, fly, and flee to him. And God, in grace through Jesus Christ, will embrace you. You've got to stop thinking in ways that keep you from him. The Bible calls that repentance. Acts 3.19 says, repent and return. And be converted. Let God change you. That times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. What does it mean to repent? Well, let me ask you this, a personal question. Does fuzzy stuff ever grow in your refrigerator? It was growing in mine yesterday. And I looked, I looked at some pico de gallo. And it turned out looking like the aliens in Toy Story. Where the claw would come down and get them. That's exactly what it looked like. So I discarded it. To eat that pico de gallo, you'd have to be pico de loco. So I threw it away. I trashed it. That's what God wants you to do with some of the mental malpractice going on in your head that Satan and maybe others have planted there. That's what he wants you to do with the stinking thinking that's going on in your heart and head. Stop believing that God doesn't love you stop believing that you cannot come to him stop believing that it cannot be a new day stop believing that you can't become a powerful tool in the hands of God stop believing that you're unforgivable and that you're undesirable stop it and start running flying fleeing rushing to him and trust him and who couldn't do that with the God who crucifies his son for your sake would you stand with me please let's pray together Father, thank you in Jesus' name for the opportunity to look to you. We praise you for your power and your goodness and your generosity and your abundance. And right now, you can come upon any soul that believes and trusts you with a new day, with a new power, with a new hope. And I want to pray that you do that today. God, would you come awesomely, change hearts and lives, and let them claim your promise.